And when I've seen people who do online stuff, try to do the referral thing, they usually struggle. You're doing affiliates, which is different, but like you could do that probably affiliate if you're an online person. And I know that these other guys like Rocket, you know, Nesto, they all use affiliates very yeah. effectively. Right. But again, you're just paying again. You're paying for business. You're just not yeah, paying, you're paying for the acquisition. Yeah. You're paying somebody you're paying. Whereas a referral based business, often you're not paying. You're paying with your sure attention and time and relationship, but you're not paying with money. The average independent agent is not sophisticated enough for them to do that, in my opinion. And they don't have the financial resources to actually stick with it long enough to figure out what works. It's a big business game. You know, you're going to be spending, you know, 50, 60, 80, $100,000 a month, and you need to know your numbers. You need to know how to, you need to dial that in. And if you can't do that, don't play it. It's a different table at the casino. And it's it not is. a table that everybody should sit at, I don't think. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. I never thought I would start a brokerage, so how the heck did I end up here? In this episode, I have Jeff Hill from his podcast interviewing me, and we talk about lots of different topics. One, how I almost nuked the podcast and what happened there. I talk about how our current COO, how I met her and how she talked her way into a program that I was like, you're not supposed to be in here. And now she's helping me transform the mortgage business. Why I never wanted to train rookies, never thought I would train rookies. What I've learned from dealing with haters and a whole bunch more. Hopefully you enjoy this conversation. I actually think it's probably one of the best conversations I've had with someone else about the brokerage and just our journey of what we've been doing. So hopefully you enjoy it. This show is actually part of Jeff Hill's show. He's got a program called Surex Advantage and he had me on and I was just going to come on his show. And when I was done, I was like, hey, I think maybe I'll share this with you guys. Also, at the end of this episode, I'm going to share with you what I think is my biggest failure so far when it comes to having a brokerage. And so that's not something I've ever talked about. So I'll do that at the end. But before I jump into that, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application document collection submission platform designed specifically for Canadian borrowers. It's very easy to use. It's got some cool features like smart docs. It knows what documents your clients need. Smart submission notes. It pulls key data from the application to send to your lender. Because if you've ever sat in a lender's office and looked at what they get, it all looks very different than us. They use different systems. And so you want to make it easy for them if you want to get yeses. And then finally, it's connected to Lender Spotlight, which is an amazing tool with 7,000 plus lender guidelines that you can rates, you can search, and it's also now got AI embedded. So very cool. Check them out at Lendesk.com and check out this conversation with Jeff. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Surex Advantage here on BHB TV. This week, I'm pleased to be joined by a man who, if you're watching this, probably needs no introduction. He's probably the godfather of mortgage brokering podcasting in Canada. So, Mr. Scott Peckford, how are you? Good, man. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> exactly. Appreciate you having you. So, you and I, I've had the pleasure of being on your show before and chatting a little bit about what Surex does. And since we launched this, I was like, hey, I would love to kind of know the story behind uh, what you've built and you are building. So, I think there are a lot of times people behind the mic have some pretty good stories, but you don't usually get to tell them because you're the ones asking the questions. So, right. So, we'll just have to learn about sure. what's going well, on. Well, where, where do you want me to start? Because, I mean, you can start in kindergarten or I can start wherever. So, it's all good. Yeah. We don't need to go too far back, but yeah, tell me about your first kiss. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, kindergarten, and her name was Megan, and I was walking down the hall, and she was hiding in like the little cubby, and she stepped out and kissed me on the cheek. Wow. And I was, and I didn't make eye contact because I was like, what just happened? What just happened? That was my first. Megan. So there you go. You ask I'm an open book. Megan's out there watching this. Yeah, you yeah. Know, your last. You call me. Scott. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So. 
Scott, you're an interesting guy because you've been in all facets of the industry. And so, you know, obviously I got to know you through the podcast and that's, you know, listening as we were getting prepared to go into the mortgage industry, I became a listener and I started listening. What was, you know, pain points for mortgage brokerages? What are brokers dealing with? And what are some of the educational aspects that they're looking to get into? So, yeah, I guess I want to start there. You've been a broker for years. What was the initial impetus for launching the podcast? Well, so I started in the broker business in 2006 and I started the podcast, I want to say 2014. And the idea with the podcast was I would go to mortgage conferences and I often found having a beer in the lobby with a top producer was more valuable than what I was getting from the speakers because I could ask the questions that were most interesting to me. And also they would get into the weeds more about like the tactical stuff. And I have found that a lot of times conferences have a lot of motivational content that I don't really like for me anyways about motivation i can go to youtube there's motivational content like i can be motivated up to the wazoo but i was like i wanted something very specific that i could take back and so that's the idea was was it'd be very difficult for me to go have a beer with all these different interesting people a was a lot of travel b i'd probably be an alcoholic by the time i was done because it'd be like just you know drinking beer but so the podcast was my way of doing that it was really just research for my own mortgage business I think you actually nailed it because that's one of the takeaways. You know, we looked at this very selfishly when I launched this thing. I was like, how can I promote Surex and get in front of people and, and meet interesting people? But that's what I found is these conversations are far more interesting and fruitful in learning, you know, what's going on behind A12 or, you know, what's going on with Rocket or some of these other brokerages we work with, hearing those stories. And you're absolutely right. You get a deeper level of understanding. And I think you nailed it, like asking those questions of, you know, when the rubber meets the road. What are you actually doing on a daily basis that's having an impact on your business? And so, yeah, 100%. So has the podcast been more for you than it was maybe the audience in terms of what you've learned? Well, I feel like I've gotten more value from it than anyone else. I mean, it's changed my life. I started it and I recorded 10 episodes before I even published the first one because I'd heard most podcasts die at six. And I was like, well, at least if I get 10. And then at about episode 100, I was doing two a week at the start. and It was a lot, plus running a mortgage business. And I almost pulled the plug. My wife, Shannon's like, no, don't do it. There's a reason you started this. On top of that, I was paying somebody to produce and everything. So even then I was like, I'm not going to get into editing this show. This would never happen if I could do that. So she talked me off a ledge from nuking it. And then maybe six months later, I get a sponsor. And the sponsor wasn't like, it wasn't like I was printing money, but the sponsor was essentially allowed me to cover the cost. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. Now it's not a drain. At least I'm learning. Yes, but now it's, I'm not paying to go to school. Now school is free. I went from right. paying to go to school, which was the podcast to now getting free. And then eventually the sponsorships went up and I was now I was getting paid to go to school. So that's when it got really interesting, but it really didn't start till 18 months in. And I tell anybody, if you're going to do a podcast, if you don't have a minimum of 18 month commitment in you, don't do it because it's going to take that long for it to be really, really valuable, I think. So well, and it's a lot of work. You know, that's what I've yes. taken away. Like finding people to chat with and like doing the outreach, hey, and then coordinating times. Like it is a lot of work and you feel awkward. You know, you're like putting yeah. yourself out of your comfort zone and you're like, yeah. So absolutely. It's been a learning experience for me for sure. So I can kind of tie into the next part of this. So then after a couple of years of doing that and compiling, say looking under the hood of all these really smart brokers, I noticed a lot of patterns of there were some things that other people could replicate and some things that were like, well, you're just like, you know, Michael Jordan can dunk from the free throw line. Well, you could study him for years. Doesn't mean you're going to do that. But there's elements of his game that you could copy to be better at your game. And that was the stuff that intrigued me the most. It was like, okay, well, what's replicatable here? And so that ended up led me into creating a training 
program that turned into a training company called 10 loans a month. And so that for about five years. And our focus with that company was helping people who are making more than hundred grand a year, just be more successful, do more volume, do it a little more efficiently. And we intentionally, which sounds crazy now because of how many rookies that we trained, we didn't train rookies because we knew that the learning curve was so steep, the failure rate was so high, and that there was a lot to it. Like I didn't believe, and I still don't believe that you could train rookies effectively just with a training program. And that's why I stayed away from it until I launched Bricks, which was the solution to, in my opinion, how to properly train rookies. That's an interesting point. So you're running an educational platform. Obviously, somebody new to the industry, they're going to be the most hungry for that type of content and that type of learning. But you guys were turning away people. Like, did you have a crisis? Initially, we did. Yeah, we told I had a couple of people, especially my very first program that I did live. I had people that were like, hey, I'm brand new. Can I come to your program? I'm like, no. You can't. The problem is, is that imagine if you went to a class, let's make this a metaphor to make it simpler. So imagine you go to a class and you're in martial arts, you're a white belt and you're with other white belts. It's great. But maybe there's a few people ahead of you, blue belt. Now you take that white belt, and you drop them in with black belts. The black belt's like, this is not going to be useful for me. I'm not going to learn anything. And you're way too far ahead. And so we were working primarily with people that knew how to do business. They just wanted to get more business. That would be this problem we were solving. And that's why we turned away you know, working with rookies. Although one of the rookies who talked themselves into my program, my very first program was Denise Lafoyne-Boise, who's now my COO, but she's a go-getter. And she's like, I know I'm brand new, but you like, let me in. And she sent me this big email about why. And I was like, okay, fine, you can come. And she just kicked ass and took names, you know? And now, you know, six, seven years later, I'm like, hey, why don't you come, let's work together and you be the COO because you're so good at building processes and systems and extremely execution oriented. And so there are exceptions to the rule. That's crazy. That's how you met Denise. She, she was your yeah. Daniel LaRusso to your Mr. Miyagi and you took a yeah, chance. And, now, and she did some of the stuff that I taught her, she did better than me. And I was like, everybody has an ego. I have an ego, but I always think about what works. And if somebody, I always say, if the garbage man has a good idea, I'll take it. I don't care. If I teach somebody something and they can do it better than me, I have numerous times in the academy made them coaches. So I'm like, you have surpassed me in execution of this. Do you want to coach on it? And I have no problem with that because I'm just like, if it's better, it's better. Like hands down. And I, I try to separate my ego from the whole thing. So that's fantastic. And so, yeah, that's crazy. But Denise, you know, obviously us working with you guys, I know Denise a little bit. And so, yeah, good for yeah, her. That's what we met. So you do that for a few years, you're running the podcast, you're still brokering and you decide, hey, there's a gap in the market here. There's a lot of people who have interest in coming into the industry. And so rather than taking those on and coaching those folks, you decide I'm going to start a brokerage that is going oh, to- Oh yeah, okay. And there's, there was kind of a, maybe a couple steps in between there. So sure, yeah. we, fill me in. I'll fill you in how we got there. So what happened was, is that I had the training was growing well. I had a mortgage brokerage. And so I ended up selling my mortgage brokerage to a friend, Jules Ferris. And she took the business to like a hundred million over five years, I think. And- it wasn't 100 million when I sold it to her. It was a good business, but she just improved the heck out of it. And so what I did was because I wanted to build this company, I said, okay, I'll sell you this business. And it allowed me to essentially focus my energy on the training company. And that did well. And then only after running this training company for several years, and rookies keep reaching out saying, can you train us? Can you train us? And then I said, okay, I'll do an experiment. And I ran a program called Five Steps to Five Million. And it worked sort of. It worked in that we showed people how to find business, so how to go talk to real estate agents, get referrals, all that stuff. But there was a big gap in their support wherever they were. Some people had good support. I'm not going to say that like some of them, the support was great and it worked. 
some of them, they would get a lead and then they would be like, fantastic. And they'd call their mentor, but their mentor is busy. Most of these people, mentors are mortgage brokers doing their own deals. Exactly. And so it could take a day or two for their mentor to get back to them. By the time the mentor got back to them, they've lost the client. They've lost the referral source and even worse, they've lost their confidence. Yeah. And so I'm like, I can show you how to get leads, but if you don't have support on the underwriting and what to do with the file, because we didn't coach on any of that. We just coached on sales, marketing, it was conversion, just lead generation, lead gen, how to have, you know, and so I was like, the only way to solve this problem, because we did experiment work, we did have people, there's a couple of brokers who went through that program, who are kick ass brokers now, and they had the support for that to work. And I realized for to solve this problem properly, I should start a brokerage. And then I thought about, okay, what do they need for support? And then the cost to deliver this was not going to be cheap. And I'm like, well, no, that's like, because if you think about it, to go be a hairstylist, it's $10,000. And when you're done, you cut hair. And if you kill it, you know, if you net 60K net, I'm talking line 150, 60K, you're doing, if you net 100K, you are probably like elite, elite hairstylist, yeah. right? Mortgage brokers, a mediocre mortgage broker, no offense, should be able to make a hundred grand a year within a couple of years. If they can't, they're probably in the wrong business. And so it would be expensive. So I thought, well, if I start a brokerage, A, we can split the cost. So essentially, they can join us. We will teach them how to do it. We'll provide the support, which I'll touch on in a sec, on what I think they need. And then we will do a 50-50 split on 10 files. And that way, we get paid, they get paid, and we get paid if they're successful. So if they're not successful, we can't be successful. Right. And I can tell you, two years in, it's worked. So that was the thing I, we did was we said, let's just partner with these people. And then we can help them. We'll both win. And then in terms of the way we did the support is I knew that the mentor model doesn't work well. And the problem with the mentor model is maybe some mentors are busy. Some mentors are better at than others. The mentor gets paid full pop on their own file. And they get a little bit on yours. Yes. And so like when they get busy, like human nature, we're Incentives. not a bad person. Yeah. If you have one file that's $4,000, another one that's 750, that's way more time and pain in the ass and probably not even going to close, which are you going to spend time on? And then the other problem was access to these people. So day one, we hired underrated coaches and put them in a Zoom room 40 hours a week, live support. And our people can hang up the phone with a client when they don't know what they're doing. Say, you know what? Let me, this is what we tell them to say if they don't know yet. Hey, you know what? I'm going to just check because the policy may have changed. And I'm going to get back to you. They go into the Zoom room. They pull up the file. They look at it with the coach. Coach tells them da, 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 back on the phone. That delay that I talked about, two, one, two, three day delay doesn't happen. Because no, exactly. And what happens is they can punch above their weight class. So if you think about it, they're able to compete with brokers that are way more experienced because they're plugging into a coach that's done thousands of files. And so we have over the last two years, I did the stats on this just recently. So this was up in a couple months ago. In the last, We've had 27 brokers who've gone through that program that did 10 plus files. Those 27 brokers have funded since beginning and to up until August, 709 mortgages which is not an insignificant number of mortgages considering almost every one of them had never even touched a mortgage before. Start from zero. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So I believe that the model works. Now we've made a lots of like, there's been so much learning. Like I'm not even going to, I could take a, you know, five hours trying to explain to you all the things that we've experimented with in, in this model. But I can tell you that it's worked for our brokers and it's worked from the coach's perspective. So that was the first year. And the first year we did 205 million. And I had no volume in there because I didn't, book a business anymore. And I don't do mortgages because it's a big enough job just for me to do this. Right. So you continue on as the educator, the teacher, the support and building out those systems, but you aren't actively touching files. 
I don't touch files. And okay. so some people will knock me for that. Well, he's not a producing. I don't think I should be. My job should be helping my people produce. I'm not competing with them. So they'll say that I'm not producing, therefore I can't help them. I will say, I'm not competing with you. And I have people that can help you that are better at helping you than me. So like, I don't care. For me, I think it's ego that says, I have to be doing these files for me to help you. I, I think that goes back to what I said in my coaching. If somebody can coach you better than me, why would I do it? Like, why wouldn't I get them to do it? It's yeah, the same, absolutely. Yeah. same philosophy. So first year we did 200 million. And at the end of the first year, we had people, I had friends that were in the business because I've been coaching for a long time and know people They're like, hey, can I join your brokerage? And I'm like, yeah, but you don't want to join a 50-50 split. We're not a fit. So I had to think about if I was going to create a brokerage for my friends who did volume, what would it look like? And I looked at eXp in particular, eXp Realty, which is yep, the fastest real estate company. And it's yep. like, those guys are just kicking ass. I was like, well, if that existed, dang, that would be pretty cool. And so that's what led us to create Bricks, which is modeled after, it's different, obviously, because mortgages are not the same as real estate. But the idea is, you know, cap commissions, rev share, transparent contracts, support, completely virtual, all those things were baked in. So then we started bringing on pros. So first we did 200 million, second year we did 500 million, 505. Jeez. And now we're averaging in the last, like the first two months, and I go August to August because we launched in August. So August, September, we did 200 million and we'll be close to 300 million by the end of September or October rather. And we're in a market that's down 40%. And yeah. we're, gonna, we're growing like, you know, and we have a large pipeline of brokers that are in the process of transferring over. So it's exciting. Like it's been a wild ride. I'm not going to lie. Like I feel like I'm holding onto the outside of a rocket ship and I'm like, ah, but been able to find some amazing people. Got a great team of people around us that are just fantastic. Denise being a great addition, but we've got a lot of other great people that just, we can do more as a team than I could possibly do on my own. It's not even close comparison. And so, yeah, that's kind of where we're at now. And so now we're just growing, we're expanding multiple provinces and we are gonna cross into the US because I believe that the plan for our brokerage is to be international, not just to be in Canada. So that's all part of the growth. Plan. Incredible. Yeah, it's obviously a rough market in the US right now, but. Yeah, that seems to be the ambition of a couple different brokerages. I know Tristan Kirk from Citadel is expanding to the US. And so I know yeah. a few large scale brokerages in Canada looking down south and seeing there's opportunity everywhere. So like, were you guys actively outgoing, trying to recruit brokers to you? Or has it always been just a constant inflow because of your reach with the podcast where people are coming to you? Initially, yes, it was like, you know, our reach is very helpful in terms of like, we have a marketing machine essentially for finding people or people finding us. And that's been great. But our model also with RevShare does mean our good people find good people. So they attract others. And so we're finding it's a bit of a mix right now. I would say it's about half and half. Half are coming in the other half or before it was like 80, it was well, it was hundred percent, you know, inbound. And now it's coming from our people going out and saying, hey, I know some other great people that might be a fit. And so that has been great. So, you know, I've obviously listened to the podcast for a while and I was familiar with, you know, your mentoring program. A lot of what you teach is kind of traditional networking, going to realtors, getting lists. Do you guys touch on digital marketing at all? Like, do you find the digital space is profitable for brokers? And the reason I ask is we are a digital first brokerage for PNC insurance. And so we were built on the back of online leads. And it was only several years into the company that I was brought on to, hey, let's go out and get affiliate referral partners where we can bring value by adding insurance into their process. Well, let me ask you a question. How much yeah. of your business right now comes from referral partners versus online leads? 
About 20% is from referral. and 80 Okay, so you're still bigger from online leads. Yeah. Now, that said, is a large chunk of our business is client referrals. So client referrals is probably another 20, 25% where just, hey, refer a friend over. And then probably right. 50, 60% would be online lead acquisition. So I believe there are several models that, well, looking at doing the podcast for so long, I mean, it'd be naive to say there's only one way to be successful as a mortgage broker. And I think that you can do the online lead thing by the leads and you run a you know a lower price, high volume shop. Ron Butler yep. does a very good job of that. And you can build a referral-based business. I have always built a referral-based business. And so in the past, my training company, I did run ads and you know do Facebook ads and stuff. And at one point, I was spending about 10 grand a month on Facebook ads. And we were making money with it and stuff. But so, which is not that much in the grand scheme of things. But no. I have nothing against that type of model. I just think that to monetize it properly, you probably need to have employees and not independent agents. Like we have independent agents. For it to be properly monetized, it needs to be like True North, which is employees. Yes. It needs to be like Rocket. It needs to be like Butler. For me to build a brokerage around online leads and then have independent brokers, I just you need to control the entire experience. And then you need to have sophistication in the ad buying and the follow-up. It's a different business. And so it's a different it, and I yep. think they both will continue to exist. I don't think one's gonna, you know, replace the other, but I do think that you can do either, but I don't know that you can do both well. I think that if I tried to do both, I think I would suck at both. And when I've seen people who do online stuff, try to do the referral thing, they usually struggle. You're doing affiliates, which is different, but like you could do that probably affiliate if you're an online person. And I know that these other guys like Rocket, you know, Nesto, they all use affiliates very yeah. effectively, right? But again, you're just paying again. You're paying for business. You're just not yeah, paying, you're paying for the acquisition. Yeah. You're paying somebody, you're paying. Whereas a referral-based business, often you're not paying. You're paying with your sure attention and time and relationship, but you're not paying with money the average independent agent is not sophisticated enough for them to do that, in my opinion. And they don't have the financial resources to actually stick with it long enough to figure out what works. It's a big business game. You know, you're going to be spending, you know, 50, 60, 80, $100,000 a month, and you need to know your numbers. You need to know how to, you need to dial that in. And if you can't do that, don't play it. It's a different table at the casino. And it's it a is. table that everybody should sit at, I don't think. Well, from our experience, you know, we're a digital brokerage and even, you know, in our industry, it is a big boy game. You know, our budgets compared to, you know, some of the direct writers like the TDs of the world, you know, we're spending a drop in the bucket. So you have to be extremely dialed in to be able to. And how to make dollar on every like possible lead you can. And that requires employees and not yes. independent agents. And so that's why I am down that model. No, it makes sense. So moving forward. Obviously, you know, the Rockets and the Nestos of the world, that doesn't really, you don't see them as direct competitors necessarily because they are going oh, directly for that online channel. I don't think about anybody else's competitor. Maybe this is arrogant. It's probably partly just, I don't care what anybody else is doing. I really don't. I believe that if I focus on helping my agents be successful, and I think we have some great stuff that we're doing, I think that we can improve it a lot. Like our rookie program is getting a complete rebuild right now, even though I would say it's the best hands down in the industry. There's no one else that's close to that. I'm like, ah, it can be better. And we are rebuilding it with that in mind. I think that if we are absolutely obsessed with helping our agents be successful, we will attract agents. And we have been attracting agents. Our mission is actually to help our agents increase their revenue per hour. It's very specific. No oh, revenue a, per hour because if I can help them increase their revenue per hour, there's two ways to do that, by the way. There's one is increase income by, we have cap commissions, rev share, 
you know, lead generation, higher conversions, yada, yada. The other way is how do I work less hours? How do I become more efficient systems process? So a broker who says, Scott, next year I did 20 million, next year I do 20 million, but I want to work 10, 15 hours less a week. I'm like, that's fantastic. I'm happy with either scenario. I don't really care because we have capped commissions. The reality is, is that the person doing 10 million, the person doing 20 million, make the same amount of money. Like it doesn't make any difference. The person doing 200 million or eight, we have somebody joining us who did 80 million last year. Wow. But, and so I'm like, I make the same amount of money on that person as I do on person who's 10. The criticism that I have heard, and again, one would be you don't produce, don't care. Second would be that you guys can't possibly be making money. And so that's what they say about us because our model is very lean. I think of us like Costco. We are like high volume, high value, low margin business. Costco makes money at scale. We make money because our rookie program works. At scale, this model works. At scale, I believe this model will be very profitable. But in the short term, yes, the reality is that our rookie program is fantastic. So because of the rookie program, it gives us the capability to do things that other brokerages are like, this doesn't even make sense. I've done the math. And I'm like, fine, I don't really care. Yeah, well, yeah, it's working for us. Yeah, so. go ahead. It's working. Like, And the number of people who said to me in the past that that sounds impossible, we can't do that. You know, numerous people told me you can't make money training mortgage brokers. It's false. I've made lots of money training mortgage brokers. Mortgage brokers won't pay for shit. Sorry if I can't swear on no. But <laughs> if you build something good, they'll pay for it. And right. so we made money building training for mortgage brokers. People said, you can't make money with rookies. We made money with rookies. People are telling me, Scott, you can't go to the US. Yep. Okay, fine. You can't make money with your model. Okay, fine. I don't care. Like, doesn't matter to me, man. We're doing what we're doing. And you do what you want to do. We do what we want to do. And I'm going to obsess about my agents. And that's it. That is what I eat, sleep and breathe. Everything else is secondary to that. It's distraction. And, uh, yeah. It's distraction. I want to touch on something you said a couple of times already, how here's some criticism in regards to the fact that you're not touching deals. And that just makes me give my head a shake because I share a wall right here. My CEO, Lance Miller at SureX is in the next mm -hmm. office over there. And he was a small town broker. So he was the one, you know, selling policies and doing the support and helping with claims. He doesn't touch that stuff anymore. And right. he's built a pretty good business because he's delegated, just like you have said, and built a business where he has dedicated brokers and he has coaches and trainers and support staff. And so never heard anybody in our industry criticize our CEO because he's not selling policies. So, I know, so why do you think is that my, is? I don't know. Here's the thing. The other belief I have is that when somebody says you can't do this, what they're really saying is I can't do it. And I hope you can't either. Right. So I had a broker. I had two brokers, actually, that one when I first started. And especially when we start with the rookie thing, this guy was, I don't know how big the brokerage was, but anyways, ours is bigger now. So he said, I, we're just waiting for you to fail. And he kind of chuckled. And I'm like, why would you even say that to me? Right. Two yeah. years later, I'm it's like, dude, I could care less about that. And I had another guy that I know. And I, this guy I respect. This first guy I didn't, it was like, whatever. The second guy I respect. And he said, you know, when you told me what you're doing, I thought you're nuts. And this guy's another broker owner. He said, I didn't yeah. think it was going to work at all. And he's like, kudos to you for like, you seem to have figured it out. So when people say you can't do it, what they're saying is I can't. And I hope you can't because then I don't know. I don't know why you care. Somebody else goes and you go, you guys build the biggest insurance company in the world. Fantastic. I don't care. You know, somebody else goes and builds another mortgage company that does well. Fantastic. Take yeah. care of your people. Yeah. I don't give a crap, man. There's so much business out there. That is not what I want to spend my time and energy on. Well, it's amazing. You know, I live in Southern Alberta. Southern Alberta is a small place, you know, like, and so you kind of know what's going on. And when Shrex launched, 
I was friends with Matt Alston, one of the Sharks co-founders, and I found myself at a kid's birthday party. And there was a old school insurance guy at this birthday party. And so we get chatting and I was like, hey, have you heard what Matt Alston's doing out in McGrath? They started this online insurance company and he went off on a tirade saying, oh, you'll never be able to sell insurance online. That'll never work. They'll fail so hard. And, you know, that guy's left the industry and we're obviously a nationwide brokerage with integrations with Finmo and with Bricks and, you know, everybody else. And so it is interesting with those who kind of get stuck in their lane of what the current paradigm is that they can't see a different model being successful. And obviously it takes people who like yourself who just say, I don't care, I'll try it anyway. And here you go. I have a flag in my office that a friend gave me and it says, we do this not because it's easy, but because we thought it was easy and we've already started. And yeah. so that, that's me. I'm like, how hard can it be? And I'm like, dang, actually way harder than I thought, like way harder than I thought, but I'm too dumb to quit. It's not smarts. It's just, it's just like, well, we'll just figure it out. You know, we started it and I do have a I would say a little bit of a level of irrational optimism. You have to. That's any entrepreneur, right? I saw an interview recently with CEO of NVIDIA, the chip maker that's behind, you know, the AI wave. They asked him a similar question. He's like, if I did it over again, knowing what I know now, I probably wouldn't do it. But because he's like, we thought we could. And so we did it and it was hard and we got through it. But knowing what I know now, it was hard. It was really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been really hard. It's been way harder than I thought. Now, The irrational optimism, I think, is a blessing in a way. And I read a quote once, and this is like my version of it, but essentially, pessimists are right, but optimists get rich. Like So so pessimists get to be right, optimists get to be rich, because optimists are going to try crap. And sometimes, and I've had a lot of failures in business, like I've had some of my stuff has been dumpster fires, like literally, like I could roast marshmallows over this catastrophe of whatever, but I just... Again, too dumb to like, oh, let's try something else. And then you go and, and you, but everything turns into learning. And so, yeah, yeah, for sure. If I would have known it was going to be as hard as it's been, I probably wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have started the podcast. If I would like, I would have done half this stuff. I would have known how much work it was going to be, but then you get in it and you just keep plodding away. You know, that's the reality. I I don't want to pretend that I'm like, oh yes, I'm, that's not real life. Like, I don't think, but no, I totally agree. Well, yeah, you're proving them wrong, which is all you can do. So I want to switch gears a little bit. Getting short on time. So I wanted to ask you a question that I'm curious to know about the future of the industry. You obviously have a front row seat through the podcast. You get to talk to a lot of innovators, a lot of you know new technology vendors. I'm just curious to get your point. Based on conversations you've had recently, where do you see a trend line going in terms of the industry in regards to tech or business model? Has there been something from the podcast that stood out and you said, hey, that could be a shift in where things go, or this could be beneficial. Well, I think that you're going to see, I think AI is going to play a role in making mortgage brokers more productive. It already has. I mean, people are using chat GPT just for like marketing stuff and content. And, you know, there's auto adjudication is a thing where their files are being underwritten with software and then getting kicked out to a person if it doesn't check certain boxes. I think that's going to continue to expand. I think it's an exciting time, honestly, to be in the business right now. I think it's a hard time, but I tell my people all the time, this is when the legends are built. Like somebody did a poll in our Facebook group, just to tell you the the type of people that we attract. They said, hey, is now a good time to be a start as a mortgage business or bad? It was a poll. It was like 95% of people say good. And it's because I truly believe that. If you look at the companies that were started in hard times, you do it now, when it turns, you're going to print money. And so I believe that in terms of technology, AI, I think is a big piece. I think auto adjudication is going to be a part of it. 
you know, I still think it's a people business. Just, you know, I don't think that that's replaced. If you look at it, Rocket, it's not going to go fully self serve direct to consumer where clients just too big. Of, it's too big of a transaction. Maybe someday, but gosh, who knows? Like, you know, even Rocket, their model is like it's basically a call center, like you know, with very good salespeople, sales training, and stuff, and they have great marketing and they yeah. drive traffic to it. But the number of people that are actually clicking button to get a mortgage is ridiculously low because it's just too large of a transaction for people to do that. Maybe someday, I don't know, but I'm not gonna worry about that. Like, gosh, like, man, there's so much work between now and then. And I think that AI enhanced people, like we're not going from like full serve, no technology to fully automated. AI. It's gonna yeah. be like the cyborg in between where you have really smart people using great technology and creating great experiences are where I think the next well, kind of I totally agree. Like you touched on it before that revenue per hour. You know, these tools are just going to amplify that revenue per hour metric that you guys measure. Right. And it may, so it may be able to reduce the number. So maybe yeah. the number of people doing it will go down, but the productivity will go up. And so those things are all good as long as you're willing to embrace it. But if you're like the guy who's like, you can't do all like, okay, well, see you later. Like, yeah, you'll exactly. be exiting soon enough, you know? Exactly. So, well, Scott, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you're a busy guy. You've got your own podcast to host and you're building rookies. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, learn more, obviously, I think they know where to find you, but what would you like to promote? Working on my Instagram. So it's something I would have, should have done a long time ago. And so find me on Instagram, follow me there, and they can always message me. That's the easiest way to get a hold Perfect. of Perfect. So we'll I'm, put your Instagram handle right here so yeah. everybody can like and follow you and say hi. So yeah. Scott, yes. really appreciate your time today. Congratulations with everything you're doing with Bricks and uh, look forward to seeing you out there. Thanks, brother. All the best. Take care. Hey, thanks again for listening. And a couple quick things. First, if you want to find out more about what we're doing at Bricks, you can go to whybricks.com. That's W-H-Y-B-R-X.com. And so I was thinking about this. I'm like, what do I think is the biggest failure? Man, there's been lots of little, and I don't even think they're big in terms of like, not, you know, catastrophic, but certainly some have been more painful than others. And I would say in the two years since we started the brokerage, my biggest lesson that I've learned is on hiring people. So we've gone through trying to figure out how to find the right people, how to interview them, how to make sure that we're getting the right people for the stage that we're at in our business. And so we initially, when I before I brought on Denise, I tried a couple other people that were amazing people. They had resumes like would impress anybody and they just weren't the right fit for us at this stage. And so what I discovered, I got a friend who took a company public. No, he didn't take a public story. He sold it to Microsoft. And I said, okay, and this was, I've known him for 15 years. He's a mortgage client. I'm like, so tell me, what did you learn? And he's like, well, taught me a lot of things. But the one thing he said is that there's two kinds of people. There's builders and then there's managers. And the people that you start with may not be the people you finish with because the people that you start with have to be builders. And then as your company gets more mature, then you need managers. And so the people that I hired for this role that Denise is in, they were more manager types. They came in and they had systems that were built and they could make those systems run and they could make them like, you know, just dial them in. But that's not what we had. We had a business that's rapidly growing. We didn't have those systems. And so what I needed in that role, and unfortunately I brought people on and we had to let them go. And then there, of course, there's just the cost of like their time. And just, just the whole thing was like very, very time consuming in terms of time, money, and just even frustration on their part too, thinking that, hey, this was one thing that it wasn't. And so what I've realized though, is that it's really about you've got to find the right person for the stage. And so right now we're in building stage. And so we need builders. Denise is a builder. She's an entrepreneur like me. And so she doesn't need a system. You just say, hey, here's a problem. And she'll start putting together a system around it. And then maybe as we continue to grow at some point, we'll have someone else backfill and, and potentially manage some of those positions and things that we've built out. 
And so that was a mistake that I don't like to mess with people's lives. There's also a financial cost of bringing somebody on than having let them go. So all of that, I would say that was been the biggest learning. And then the other piece that I've learned or that has been challenging is it's hard to hire for highly technical roles. So hiring for like a really good admin person, we've got that down. I have a training that we've done. We've hired like 100, probably 120 assistants, like admin assistants. We used to do that as a service for mortgage brokers when I ran a coaching company. And we can find really good sort of low skilled people because you're looking mostly for attitude. The challenge with highly technical people is that the pool of people is smaller. And so you gotta be way more strategic about how you interview them, what you look for. And so this is all new to me. And I'm like, oh, dang, you can't use the same strategy to sift through a pile of like, you know, admin people versus trying to find somebody at an executive level. You got to headhunt, essentially. Whenever you're going to those technical roles, you're probably going to headhunt more often than not is what I'm discovering. You're not going to probably find that rock star with just a job posting on LinkedIn or on Indeed. So anyway, that, I would say that was the biggest learning that I've had so far is just trying to make sure that we find the right people. And I feel like my job now I've had to have a mindset shift on this because I like building things. I love to build things. I don't build as much anymore. Now my job is to find people and recruit, find the right people, put them on the bus, get them in the right seat, empower them to do stuff. And so I've had to shift in my mind and I do like it. So I'm like, because the cool part about the team thing that I, you know, because when I, you run a successful mortgage business, you can do it with two or three people max. Like you can do a lot of mortgages with a handful of people. What we're doing right now is way bigger than anything like that, has way more moving parts, way more people. So it's not possible to do that small. And so you really do need to learn how to build teams and, you know, lead people and motivate people and hire them and all of the stuff that's involved in that. And so that has been a big time learning curve for me. And I've been enjoying it. I'm frankly enjoying it. The other thing that I really like about running a brokerage that I didn't have, because I think I'm fairly innovative or I wouldn't say creative. I've been called uncreative. And I think that what I like about the brokerage is that I'm able to do things. It's like a new video game with all these new toys and parts. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can do things at scale that I couldn't do as an individual broker. I couldn't do even running a training company, but I can do running a brokerage. And so that makes me excited because I'm like, I can still apply my creative mind. I just have a whole bunch of new you know, buttons and levers that I can push to see what's going to work. And that makes me really excited because I can apply my creativity. And I also have to learn the skill of the people side of like, finding awesome people. And I do think we have an amazing team right now. Like it's been a process to get here, but I do feel like the team we got in place is pretty freaking awesome. And so I'm always looking for amazing people. So if you know anybody amazing, and the other thing I believe too, is if you find somebody amazing, you hire them even before you have a position for them. Like if you know that they're amazing, they're available. So if you are amazing, you probably know if you're amazing, if you're listening to this, you're like, yeah, I'm pretty amazing. I'd like to chat, maybe who knows if there's something that we could do but I'm definitely always on the look for people that are entrepreneurial, that can self-manage and that have a passion and a particular set of skills. That's something I would absolutely love. And so if you know somebody or if you are that somebody, definitely reach out. I would love to chat with you. Anyways, thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to find out more about Bricks, go to whybricks.com. And thank you, Jeff, for having me on the show. Ask me such great questions. Go check out his show. And I'll see you on the next episode. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.